Okay, this is Philosteopathy episode four. Um, ben Green, second year ONMM resident from Michigan State University. Dr. Polad, uh, pediatrics with special interest in OMT. I'm not even sure what year I would call myself anymore. <laughs> Graduated 03 from school, 06 from residency. So we ha we'll have Dr. O'Connor, PM&R doctor, who is in the last episode, Philosteopathy episode. He'll be joining us a little bit later. We're gonna talk about this article from John Lewis titled, The Timeless Teachings of A.T. Still. And we're just gonna work through it systematically. And so the first paragraph, Still, or John Lewis, a European osteopath, I believe from Wales, and uh, John, if you're listening, I apologize if you're not from Wales, uh, says, still, the prevailing opinion, and he's talking about his British school of osteopathy, the prevailing opinion at his school was that still was merely a historical figure whose teachings had been superseded by a more scientific attitude. So, basically still's obsolete. Science is now, science is what should be, is, is taken, has taken over, has superseded the teachings of A.T. Still. What, what do you think about that, Dr. Pollard? Well, he, he points out in this uh, paragraph that, you know, his school only gave a one hour lecture on A.T. Still. And I don't know what your experience was, but I think we, we had, I had to go digging to find out a little bit more about A.T. Still. And when I got into school, that's what kind of drew me, is that I did see at least a little bit about A.T. Still. And um, I think I've mentioned it before, I kind of had an undeclared minor in evolutionary biology in undergrad. And so just a super special interest in that. And the funny thing is, osteopathy always struck me as to be really kind of in alignment with evolutionary principles. Um, so that's why I pursued it was to kind of um, follow things that I were, was already thinking about when it came to science. Um, and um, as the concepts kind of work together, you have this kind of innate wisdom built into the biological mechanism of, um, of the human being. And so I just stills thinking and the osteopathic approach really kind of harmonized a lot with that. Um, so that's what draw, drew me to osteopathy in the first place without any personal history about it. So I was, like Lewis, um, kind of disappointed that we didn't hear more about A.T. Still. So to see that he wrote this article um, just had a nice resonance with my experience as well. Yeah, I, I do find it interesting. I had the same experience in my medical school. We had maybe one or two lectures, no, probably not even a full lecture about Still. He was kind of peppered in the introduction to OMM as the founder and that his kids had passed away from spinal meningitis and he became disillusioned with Western medicine and as a result of that, started down this path which later became osteopathy. But it really no more than that, which is surprising to me. Yeah, and it wasn't until I read um, the book um, called The Reformation in Progress that, you know, and looking at things qualitatively, what you just mentioned was another thing that I think is extraordinarily valuable about Still is that he had the wherewithal to say, hey, this isn't working. And the desire to at least experiment and look for other things that were potentially working. And, you know, as someone who's got a bit of background in administration and quality and even patient safety, um, those principles right there are extraordinarily timeless and valuable. And unfortunately, we need to fight for them a little bit in um, a lot of medical systems. So he was quite innovative in, in that route. And so I do think, you know, he had a lot of value when you look at the full context of the man 
that, yeah, I don't think we share that enough. Yeah. And then it's interesting still, and I will admit, I have read a few pages of um, principles and research from Still, Still's direct writings. Um, people that have read Still say that he's not a great author, and I would second that from the little that I've written, but it's interesting that we talk about principles, principles, we, the principles of osteopathy, right? So when you, when, you, when you ask someone, well, what is osteopathy? They usually, frequently, in my experience, I brought up the four tenets of osteopathy, right? The body is a unit. The body possesses self-regulatory mechanisms. Structure and function are reciprocally interrelated. Rational treatment is based upon these principles, right? That just like rolls off your tongue. And Dr. Rohn would be so proud that I just mentioned those because he tests every MSU comm student about those principles. But actually those principles are not direct quotes from Still. They were made by a committee in Kirksville in 1953. So it's an interpretation, I believe, of Still's writing that has become kind of the mainstream nuclei of what is osteopathy, but, but it's interpretation of Still's writings. Mm -hmm. So Lewis, John Lewis brings up, there's a difference between these four tenets of osteopathy and the philosophy of osteopathy. There's a difference there. Why, why do you think that's important? Philosophy well, versus principles. Why is that an important distinction to make? Well, I, I look at it this way, um, and I, I'll even talk to different colleagues about the difference between MDs and DOs, and that is we have a philosophy of medicine. The, the basic philosophy of an allopath is basically do no harm, um, and then use science to treat people. But the issue in anywhere you look really modern in modern times, science is a tool and that and that science cannot know everything. And so we have to have a system by which we make decisions when we don't know everything. And so those that think that everything is evidence based are number one, sorely mistaken, but two, if they're not kind of wrapped in a philosophy that helps them make decisions, then it actually calls into question the quality of decisions that are being made for a patient or an individual situation. And so that's where I think the, the value of philosophy is so important. And it's interesting that as functional medicine kind of come, and integrative medicine comes along, those concepts that they're using um, are very, very similar to what Still had come up with a hundred years ago. And so I think it's extremely important to point out the importance of a philosophical umbrella to any type of healthcare that you're providing. You would still say though that these principles are still wonderful principles, truths, pillars of osteopathy. Would you? Do you think if Still read these four principles, he would say, I agree with that? I think so. I think so. And what I think a lot of people critique his writing, he was just writing metaphorically a lot. Um, it took me a while to figure out what he was talking about uh, when I was reading research and practice. And he started talking about clouds when people were breathing. And then I realized, oh yeah, we give off water vapor you know, and especially you can see it in the wintertime. So I think he was just sort of thinking through in what was obvious in the day. And because we don't speak that language or think the same way, it becomes difficult to ascertain what he is, um, what's he, what he's talking about. But um, I think as with most things, when you kind of get to know someone in the context that it was written, it becomes a lot more understandable. Yeah. Now you brought up an interesting point. Not 
everything is evidence-based. You know, we were constantly presented with research articles that are presenting evidence that are double-blind, placebo-controlled, and that for most specialties is the gold standard for research and guides us to how we should practice, essentially, is what we think. You're saying not everything is evidence-based. Can you give us some examples and why that's an important principle to understand? So evidence always, and the amount of research that's done, is always dependent upon the simplicity of the question that's being asked. And so one of the, um, and I guess it's thrown around a lot these days, so I, I'm gonna happily use it, is the inherent bias in medical research is the simple questions are the ones that are answered. So it doesn't get much simpler than giving someone a placebo and then giving somebody a pill and then following the results of that. So it becomes a very easy yes, no question and a null hypothesis to investigate. Um, now, no matter what type of research, what type of science is behind the pill, and I think we are getting better and better and better um, with certain chemical, um, <clears throat> um, you know, chemical interventions in the body and drugs and injectables and all sorts of different medications that are coming out. But that's just one aspect of medicine. Um, what about the uh, best way to handle a child with torticollis, whether it's manipulation or whether it's physical therapy? Um, is there an easy way to figure out a head-to-head -head, um, treatment? Because if I'm saying that I can treat a kid within two to three visits and I have data that shows that, um, why would we then send a child for eight weeks to physical therapy? Um, so even the ethics become um, kind of astounding to contemplate. So as the complexity builds, the research becomes a little bit more difficult to do. And when you have a intervention like manipulation, you unpack a whole slew of questions about validity, um, about um, persistence between two individuals, you have um, all sorts of things that make it a far more complicated question than placebo versus whatever medicine that we are planning against. And so if we're saying that, you know, we're going evidence-based on the research that's simple to do relatively, although it's very expensive, but, <clears throat> you know, we are biasing the evidence base to medications and very simplistic types of interventions. And so um, then that leaves a whole host of questions and we have to have a you know, discussion about how to answer those questions in a safe way um, when we are dealing with patients, um, but we can still measure outcomes. So um, we just have to be very careful that when we're saying evidence-based, that we realize that that actually favors a certain segment of medicine, which is the medications. Um, and then some other types of, it's just a good example to, to talk about. Um. Yeah, interesting. I never thought of it like that. Evidence-based research biases research or pushes research towards pharmacological or more very specific, concrete, measurable outcomes. Whereas OMT, when you're doing a myofascial release to a person, like there's a lot happening there, right? You're, there's fascial unwinding, there's skeletal muscle tension being relieved, there potentially is an increase to blood flow in the area, there's potentially less compressive forces against the nerves in the area. Well, and let's take perfect example last week we did a dry needling tutorial right so I've been doing a lot of dry needling work which let's just say it's either poorly or not reimbursed by certain insurances and so we had a office staff person who's been dealing with quite a painful 
right lower quadrant pain for approximately three years. And so uh, she's had a workup, uh, which included uh, appendicitis. Uh, even one of the residents thought perhaps she had a chronic appendicitis. And I just happened to catch her in the hallway after we'd heard you know, that she was dealing with this. And she told me the story, which in the middle of the night, she rolled over and felt a very sharp pain in that lower abdomen. And that just hasn't gone away. And specifically when she's walking down the hallway, whenever she steps is when she feels the pain. And it doesn't come in waves like we're taught, you know, uh, hollow viscous, um, like a urethra or ureter, uh, it's got a stone, um, the pain will kind of crescendo, decrescendo. This was just every time she moved. So that to me sounded like there was a high pre-test, if you will, probability that it was muscular pain. And the two muscles in the region um, are psoas and iliacus. So, and I recently learned how to dry needle the iliacus and the psoas. So I kind of talked it over with her and she was looking at calling her primary and getting a workup done. So my initial thought was, hey, get your workup done. And if they find, uh, if they find that it's um, nothing that they can explain, then we can dry needle it. And then she's basically like, well, is dry needling pretty safe? I'm like, yep. Is it pretty effective if you're right? And I'm like, yep. And uh, so we did it and her pain was significantly improved. And when the needle hit the muscle, she felt precisely the pain that she's been dealing with and it reversed very quickly. So here we have dry needling, which there is study after study after study after study that dry needling of trigger points is actually very effective, but yet it is very, very difficult to get it um, to get it paid for because it's not falling under the evidence-based umbrella that medications, uh, placebo versus you know, medication will fall under. So, but in this case, we talked through the informed consent process um, and she'd already been worked up and she was having severe pain and it was relatively low, um, uh, low risk uh, with a dry needle and she said, hey, let's go for it. And so we did, and she's significantly better. So having a philosophical approach to this helped us save money and treat the patient. But the questions raised in this, um, in this exchange are so complicated that um, it becomes very difficult to know exactly how to study it other than you know, teasing apart the steps and the logic that went into this good outcome. Hmm. So we've got the uh, good Dr. O'Connor has showed up to share his knowledge with us this Hello. evening. Good afternoon. Dr. O'Connor is a PM&R doc com graduate? No. No. <laughs> no Nova Southeastern. Nova Southeastern. That's many, right. many years ago. So we're talking about, Dr. O'Connor, we're talking about this article, The Timeless Teachings of A.T. Still. We're talking about the complexities, simple research versus complex research. Dr. Pola just gave the example of dry needling. I kind of want to dive into the nucleus of this article where John Lewis says, osteopathy is nature. What, what does that mean to you? Well, I would look at this um, osteopathy is nature. It's basically uh, an understanding of us, the human organism, uh, our biological makeup, our you know the, what what makes us us, our our major organs, our neuromusculoskeletal system, and how we live and interact with the rest of the world and how we interact with our environment and how we interact with other animals and people uh, you know so I, I see that as a as a term that might describe osteopathy in not a simplistic term unlike at the time of uh, those teachings came out uh, but as a, uh, a more of a necessary term uh, because uh, 
you know, certainly at that time there was uh, no real concrete direction of medicine and what the best treatment for medicine were, uh, what the best pathways were for. And there was a lot of failures. There was a, a lot of failures at that era. And so as such, I think philosophically saying, you know, osteopathy is nature, uh, is looking at thinking outside the box, looking at the problems that, you know, we were facing medically at that era with certain diseases, uh, uh, illnesses, flus, uh, childhood uh, viral uh, xanthems that were going around, uh, infections from war and surgery and amputations and all of that. All of that kind of, you know, all those obstacles uh, were present at that time. And so I think it was really just a mindset of, in terms of taking care of, you know, the problems that are confronting us and how can we approach it's a little bit different than what has been approached. Okay. If I, I'm gonna add another, another question on top of that, which is building on what you, you've already built, um, what, what you've already talked about. So osteopathy is nature. Lewis says, Still's philosophy is that nature is infinitely more wise than human reason. Which is interesting because I think reason is kind of part of our human nature, but... Um, and then he goes on to say, to say, disease is altered physiology, but what caused the, phys but what caused the physiology to go awry in the first place? And then he says, well, the body innately has these principles in its nature to heal itself. Would you, he says, if the, the body innately contains all the remis, remedies needed for curing itself. What do you think about that? Do you agree with that? Well, you know, I mean, it's certainly uh, as, it, I, as it was understood at that time, I would absolutely think that that was a very poignant and uh, strong statement. Uh, to make, uh, and I do think a lot of that is true. A lot of that statement is true. I do think that the human body uh, and capacity uh, does have the ability to cure itself. Um, you know, and I think if you look, if you think a little bit about uh, what was the other statement you said, something like uh, disease is altered physiology. Uh, something was wise. What is wise? Uh, before that, wisdom in the na in nature. There's wisdom in there's wisdom. Osteopathy's nature. Nature is infinitely more wise yes. than human reason. Okay, so nature is infinitely more wise than human reason. So I think if you think about that, you know, contextually, uh, we live in the here and now. We make decisions. We we think, therefore, we are. All that you know, it's like you know, that that's the the existence of our being. Uh, but I would say I would argue, but I say nature is. What year was that uh, statement? So, out? this. Hmm. I'm not sure. This was written. This article was written in 2013. Okay, but that's. But he's true. reading still. Right, still. From back in, like, we talking? 1870s? I think 1890. Late 1970s. Okay. So, that was after uh, The Origin of Species was published, right? Yep. Okay, which in itself is an amazing uh, uh, topic and, and read whatever. Uh, but so I would look and look at that and say that uh, over time, and again, we're just a grain of salt, and when it comes to time, that nature and will ultimately find out the cures and the ways to survive and to preserve. Uh, the species that you know to potentially preserve the species it fails sometimes because we have species that go extinct but I think ultimately uh, if you look at thousands and thousands of years uh, we overcome uh, a lot of illness and problems that we face on a daily basis uh, more through a macro lens of time and our body has the capacity to improve generation after generation after generation to make that happen. 
Yeah, I was going to add that connection back to evolution. So, I mean, built into the evolutionary theory is that if you've survived, you have mechanisms that have helped you survive. And so why would those not include our immune system and other things that have been built over time that help us do just that? And then the question always arises then is what's the ideal environment where that physiology works the best? And then what are the resilience factors that are built in? And so when you begin to see disease, the, um, the uh, you know, question becomes, what has gone wrong with the ideal environment? Um, you know, and you can look at that at cellular level all the way up to macro organizational level as well um, with different folks. But then also realizing that resilience is you know, kind of baked into that idea of survival. So I think when Still was talking about the, the wisdom in nature, um, that, that dovetails very, very nicely with an evolutionary approach but then for those that are kind of wondering why we're kind of focusing on evolution, I really don't see a, in this particular aspect of looking at the human mechanism, I don't see a conflict between looking at it from a deistic view either. So if you have a, 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 <clears throat> a deity that's created humanity or humanity has emerged from an evolutionary pathway, you have wisdom built in both sides. So then the question becomes, are you going to respect that wisdom or not? And then how do you build that into your medical care? Hmm. I think still is coming from that deistic perspective, mm -hmm. that humans have been created by God and have these intrinsic capacities for self-healing, self-discovery, health. Yeah, I guess. Um, but so, so what is our role as physicians then? We talked. You talked about the building this environment to enable self healing. This environment of health. What, what, what do you mean by that? Oh, how does the physician do that? Because we're we're physicians here. What's our role? Well, I've always. Simple question is, I'm just a consultant. I'm not. I'm not really the guy. No, I'm not the deity. I'm not the, you know, the purveyor of, of uh, evolution or the driving force behind evolution, natural laws, whatever. So I have to work within those laws. So the more I know about the way those laws work, the better I'm probably able to influence something. Um, and so you can try to know as much as you can, um, or you can um, you know, proceed with as little knowledge as possible. And sometimes it's kind of an, a question of perspective. Um, I've always thought osteopathy is sort of like the, the organic approach to medicine. And we talked earlier about this uh, Western versus more holistic philosophy. And I think there's a lot of ground we could cover there but what is the western approach versus more holism it's reductionism versus you know looking at the whole picture and which which one is better and whenever you see these these dualisms really the question is what what's the wisest thing in the moment do we need a strict set of reductionistic rules to uh, to fix something or do we need to use a holistic approach to fix something? And usually the question the, or the answer is somewhere in the middle. And so being open and alert to that, to both possibilities, is probably going to be more effective. Yeah, my, um, I guess my answer to that is similar, but my, uh, my perspective would be the physician role uh, in that whole process uh, I see myself as an expediter, an influencer of the disease process uh, because we may carry our own innate ability to improve and heal and at the end of the day most conditions that we treat if left alone would eventually stabilize. Now that's not to say they wouldn't be in a better place, they may be stabilized in, in a less advantageous place uh, in terms of their function and their health. So my role is to make that 
happen quickly. My role is to influence the outcome by making the outcome better than maybe would have been uh, expected if we were allowed to just let the disease process manifest itself without intervention. So even though I do believe and and you know and feel strongly that the that the body does have the capacity to overcome many of the ailments and disease processes ultimately the body is going to try to survive and ultimately it's going to try to stabilize itself but our role is to make that a softer landing our role is to influence it so that we can benefit more on the you know on the outcome than we would have otherwise if left alone interesting can you give some examples? Either of you examples? Sure. So, for example, um, you know, I'm an interventional patent specialist, and I do a lot of procedures on patients. Uh, for example, I might do uh, something called a selective transforaminal epidural injection that we do commonly for disc herniation. So, you know, a patient may have symptoms of low back pain, right leg pain. Uh, looking at the MRI, we see a if you see a you know a moderate size, mild to moderate size disc herniation at L4 or 5, we know there's inflammation around the nerve root. We know the patient is suffering. We know the patient's been struggling for several weeks. They're unable to exercise, unable to do a lot of you know functional things with their with their life because of that pain. So we decide to do an injection under image guidance where I'm putting medicine right around the disc herniation itself and the nerve root to hopefully reduce chemicals, swelling and other structures that are involved in causing that spike and that acute symptoms and, the, and the, the pain that they're experiencing at that time. So we do that and many times we get very significant reduction in that leg pain uh, within days, 80-90%. And a lot, of, a lot of cases that actually persists and goes uh, and lasts several months or longer. So left otherwise alone, not intervening, you know, that patient may have had increased pain for several months, missed many days of work, family engagements, uh, had to look at other types of uh, treatments that might not have been as, as healthy uh, for them. Um, but at the end of the day, the condition still may have stabilized itself in three, four, six, 12 months uh, out. So I'm an influencer, I'm an expediter, I'm trying to make them feel better quicker. I'm trying to alter the disease process so that after over time, even if it recurs, it may not be as bad as it was before. And I feel like that's an example of my work. Okay. Dr. Pollock, do you want to give any example? Um, <clears throat> sure. Um, well, let's just take um, adolescence and pain um, that uh, present to the office quite frequently. Um, and many times that, you know, they've kind of been in the system for maybe a, two years, um, multiple MRIs, uh, not finding anything, um, and then uh, still in pain, three, uh, you know, let's say three or four um, visits to physical therapy, and nothing is, is changing. Um, and so what we do is we kind of look at things. I will try to get as precise as a picture of where that pain is coming from, whether it's the bone, whether it's the surface layer, whether it's the muscles, tendons, and then pick an intervention. Uh, in, in my world, it's manipulation and now more and more dry needling. Um, and oftentimes with that approach, you end up um, curing the pain. And, uh, you know, it just took the knowledge to do it um, again, that knowledge of kind of the anatomy um, and then the, uh, the intervention that's going to help, in this case, not needing uh, medications, um, but then also kind of understanding too, uh, in, in cases that are somewhat harder to fix, you often see kind of a, you have to build a little bit bigger context uh, for the patient in terms of stress um, and or adversity, sometimes trauma, pain amplification, if it's there. And so oftentimes if these things are not thought through, then the patients will struggle in the 
um, you know, medical system with people that don't have that deep of a knowledge into what will help. So, so I guess, um, again, um, it takes, it takes intimate knowledge of the, the principles the body is showing you to work within those principles uh, to return them to health and actually I would add in to thriving. So people can kind of get along with pain, but have they really gotten back into the realm of thriving? Um, and that's, that's another thing that we need to pay attention to as we're deciding if we're successful or not. Yeah. Um, I'm going to go back to what Dr. O'Connor was saying. Are there moments in your intervention where you're, you know, you're going through your clinical reasoning and the risks don't outweigh the benefits? Absolutely. Where you say, okay. Or maybe the side effect profile. Right. You're like, mm, maybe not. Maybe this isn't a good candidate. Can you right. give us an example? Of that? Well, it happens a lot, you know. And so, I mean, our role is we always want to help. We want to think, and me especially as a clinician, uh, I'm always thinking outside the box. I'm always pushing the envelope. What can I do to really make a difference? And I'm using all my knowledge, all the medical knowledge that I have, you know, all the evidence-based knowledge that I have. Uh, when I'm making those decisions and you know there are patients that are trying to advocate for themselves to become to get better you know and they're and they really have an agenda and a goal so they want to you know patients are pushing us to as providers do something do something that can help me please and they're pleading with us and so you know we always have that sense of really I want, really really want to help them I really want to do something uh, but you know the first when we decide on doing a, a you know a procedure, an ablation, a nerve block, uh, or something uh, you know interventional-wise, even 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 an exercise program, a certain medication, uh, you know those don't come without you know side effect and risks uh, in certain patients and individuals. Uh, recently, I saw a patient who uh, had multiple spinal surgeries, had. Uh, you know, but was fused basically from uh, four levels from L2 to S1. Uh, even above that in their spine, they had severe stenosis. Uh, they had type 2, they have a lot of medical comorbidities on type of that, type 2 diabetes. They had peripheral neuropathy, renal failure, and anticoagulants as well. So you've got a, you know, you got a lot of disease processes at play here. You've got, you know, all or major organ systems are, are struggling. Um, but despite all that, this patient wanted to keep plugging along. Keep, you know, what can you do? What else can we do? What can we do? And the complaint was a combination of neuropathy, which was multifactorial due to diabetes, renal disease, and chronic illness, as well as chronic spinal, we call post-Lamy syndrome or chronic radiculitis. Uh, so they were experiencing a lot of pain. So, you know, one of the treatment options and considerations was would this be a candidate for something called spinal cord stimulation could i implant a device into this patient uh, and would that you know patient then have better control over their functional pain uh, with this device and would this be a, and you know, would the result and outcome be a positive problem with this particular case and, and that this patient really was a relatively very sound mind they just wanted to get better you know but there were so many other medical obstacles and procedural obstacles that would have made it a riskier procedure even anticoagulation aside other medical comorbidities aside this patient had severe spinal stenosis above where they were already fused the procedure itself, putting electrodes and leads into the epidural space, uh, would have been potentially dangerous, and the surgery to implant those leads would have been uh, dangerous as well. So, you know, at some point you can you have to say, look, I you know I know you want to get better in this and that, but unfortunately, from my perspective, I don't think you're an optimal candidate, and let me tell you why. You know, and I, I think if you explain that to the patient. It goes a long way in them trusting your judgment uh, and your opinion. Um, you know, sometimes physicians just, you know, shrug their shoulders, or at least the patients perceive 
that their doctor just said, there's nothing else I can do. And I really don't believe most of us say that. But if you go around and you talk to patients that see you, oh, I saw a doctor so-and-so, he said there's nothing they, there's nothing else anything they, they can do. And I don't really hear that. I don't hear my colleagues really saying that or using that language very often. I think they're going to say, you know, look, it's not safe, and let me tell you why. I think they give explanations, but I don't believe, but I think patients, unfortunately, hear, oh, my doctor said, you know, there's nothing else I can do. There's nothing that can be done. So do you think um, in a case like this, so it's obviously medically complicated, and you get to a point where, you know, you're looking at risk benefit. Um, do you think that patients hear or we as a profession give a message that nothing else can be done or there's nothing else that I can do? So that, that to me is a fascinating question um, because oftentimes, you know, we, we get it and we get it pretty frequently in OMM. Well, my doctor said there was nothing else that could be done. And here we are, two visits, they're pain free. You know what yeah, I mean? So right, it's, right. A, That's it, right. it's a knowledge issue. And again, kind of goes to the context of the whole medical establishment and, and kind of is, is there value in sort of kind of being more kind of honest about, well, I don't think there's anything that can be done, but there may be someone out there that could do something. Well, I think that's a, yeah, I think that's a great point, you know, and that's a great option for patients and educate them, you know, to, you know, what you're thinking. I, you know, again, you know, and, and I, you know, training residents and fellows, it's like, if you, if you spend that extra time connecting with the patient so that they are, you are connecting, they really feel, and you are really understanding what their concerns are, uh, you're going to go a long way to improving your outcome and to making the patient feel satisfied with your experience. But yeah, no, I, I think, I, I agree. I think that uh, it's, it's reasonable to say, you know what, I think in my hands, from my experience, I don't think there's much more that can be done. Other people may have a different opinion. Um, but I would caution going against, you know, maybe that, and let me tell you why I think feel that way. So, um, you know, I think it's, you have to be honest with our patients. We have to we have to know when to say when, you know, and that's and that's not easy. That's never been easy for me, uh, as, as as for what I do. Uh, that's just not how I'm wired. Uh, but I I'm trying every day. I try <laughs> I try to uh, stay take a pause, take time out. You know, like I put myself on a thirty second delay. You know, I, okay. <laughs> All right. Okay. Let me think. Okay. Maybe this is not the best. So, you know, but I think that's, you know, I think that's what you got to do is, you know, we, we see a lot of patients that, I mean, a lot of them are very desperate. They want help. Um, you know, and again, physician do no harm. That's, that's you know, the key. But at what point are you like, Barbara, your peripheral neuropathy is because you're stuffing your face with donuts. Like, at, at, like, at what point do you like put the onus back on them? Like I... I can't do anything for okay. you, but that's an interesting there's a point. lot of things that okay. you can do for yourself. Okay, so that's interesting. So, um, I mean, another whole podcast will, will be, you know, the, the burgeoning, some of the burgeoning health problems like 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 obesity, right? And we're seeing that, and it's it's to the point now where it's it's overtaking. It's it's actually affecting every specialty. Okay, it's affecting every specialty because surgeries and procedures require more time. There's more lab testing, more complications, more infections. The list goes on and on and on. Um, but yeah, I think I think we do have to uh, be honest and have that conversation with patients if there's things that they can do on their end that would help them, and and maybe even steer them uh, into uh, another specialist that might be able to address some of those issues. So, for example. Uh, in neuromusculoskeletal medicine, we see a lot of pain, a lot of arthropathies, this and that. Um, the clinical studies, and, and I tell patients this all the time, uh, in the world of spine, you know, patients always tell me, oh, if I think if I just lose 30 pounds, 40 pounds, I think my back's going to feel better. Don't you agree? I hear that almost once or twice a month, okay? Almost once or twice a month. My answer to that has not changed, it's been consistent because I've actually researched this pretty extensively. Doing, looking at literature, my answer is maybe. Maybe it will get better, 
it, it may not, in fact, don't count on it because uh, you know, the clinical studies have shown that weight loss and you know, interventions uh, you know, don't necessarily improve spinal pain health long term. And I have lots of personal anecdotal examples of that that go back a long time now. Uh, you know, the one condition where the, the data is real clear is, on, is in knee osteoarthritis and probably foot and ankle as well. But the data is real clear showing that, you know, weight loss and, you know, and exercise, but specifically weight loss, is going to improve uh, knee pain uh, without any other intervention in most, in most patients. So, um, you know, educate your patients when, when you think that there could be, uh, you know, something that they can do on their end that might be affecting or influencing their disease process. I want to add a little bit to that. We talked, Dr. Pollard and I were talking about evidence-based medicine versus non-evidence-based medicine. Is one better than the other? What about if that obese patient with low back pain, you know, says, says to you, yeah, if I lose 30 pounds, my back's gonna feel better, and you say, maybe. What if, let's say it does, their back pain does get better, but their obesity is because they have no self-esteem because they were sexually abused as a child. Yeah. You know, like that, That I don't know that that can be measured in a, I don't know, in a trial. I don't know. When we talk about evidence-based versus non-evidence-based, yeah. could this be an example of non-evidence-based medicine that's... Well, we're, we're pushing up against very interesting to get us back to kind of the osteopathy piece of this. We've had some pretty hyper-focused discussion so far on like medically precise things um, neuropathy that kind of stuff and I'm trying to figure out where where do the osteopathic principles kind of lie back into this and that's where I think you know the research is important in terms of you know we, we tend to do some demographic work um, with patient populations you know white black you know Asian female male but where's the, the trauma score? You know, we've got an ACE score where we can kind of, it's, it's crude right now, but how many ACEs did you have growing up? You know, and we look at that um, also in our outcomes. Um, and so a lot of this is kind of like, well, what's our knowledge? And we can only apply, even, you know, still had a limited idea of what nature really was. He was, putting bones and fascia back in place and letting nature take its course. Um, we clearly have progressed. We know a lot more about nutrition. We know a lot more about biopsychosocial models. We even know that if we take walks in nature, the trees are making chemicals that help sustain our health. You know, so, um, so there's kind of like applying this knowledge to individuals. Are there any of these non, or some of these Kind of holistic measures that work in a patient that you know Dr. O'Connor's got to have the the discussion with about I, I can't I'm not the one that can help you but where do we kind of connect that patient to knowledge that that may help them you know like where where is our individual responsibility as a profession or as an osteopath to kind of like leave the door open for those that at least have some amount of evidence behind them because honestly what i'm seeing is we have a lot of you know case studies we have a lot of osteopathic principles in the realm of manipulation let's just take infants with torticollis um you know one to two visits they're better with manipulation versus eight weeks with physical therapy may or may not be better um so how do we like is it an expression somehow of osteopathy of getting that knowledge to where it's most readily needed. And then what's our individual responsibility as individual physicians? Sort of a, another kind of aspect to getting that, you know, um, getting that into the healthcare system. You know what I mean? Hmm. And I feel like this kind of leads into that question of, like what, I feel like osteopathy will kind of always be on the fringe of Western medicine because we do take this 
let's let the body try to heal itself if possible kind of that a super conservative approach and I think that can maybe other specialties that do prescribe much more medications than we do or that do order much more imaging than we do can look at that and be like why did you go to medical school or how are you using your medical knowledge that you learned throughout medical school I feel like it's two different philosophies nature versus not maybe not versus a very naturalistic and some I've heard prescribe as hippie versus the technological advancements in our imaging and new drug development and i know dr o'connor has a, has a lot to say about this yeah so you know so i look at this so um you know eventually you know today's osteopathy is not you know at stills it, it's not the osteopathy of the 1940s or 50s even even so uh, in fact um, they call it the fastest growing medical profession and I think that's because they're building more medical schools like everywhere. Uh, and, you know, and apparently there's a need for that. Uh, so that's good. So I think what, what's, what's happening is that we're gonna be producing more and more osteopathic physicians. Uh, and the, as time goes on, as, as technology, uh, you know, interfaces with medicine and different specialties interface with other specialties, uh, you know, there's not going to be uh, a huge distinction on the on a lot. I'm not going to say the majority, but I'm going to say a lot of osteopathic physicians versus allopathic uh, physicians. With that being said, uh, I think the principles that we learn in uh, osteopathic medical schools uh, we can incorporate in multiple different specialties and subspecialties, even, uh, and I think we could use those advantages. Um, what I think what we could do as a, as a profession may be to try to incorporate on the primary education and an earlier level many of the uh, osteopathic principles and to correlate that maybe a little bit stronger uh, and more uh, you know from an earlier onset and maybe even more effectively uh, with other natural uh, disease processes that are managed by other specialists and, and other con you know for other conditions so <clears throat> pain is an easy thing I think to correlate some of the somatic dysfunction or structural problems that we see uh, and we manage every day uh, in physical medicine rehabilitation and, and pain management uh, I think pain is a very uh, a good thing it's very difficult to treat uh, but uh, we can, you know, incorporate, you know, modern therapeutics, modern diagnostics uh, with osteopathic principles of treating somatic dysfunction to do exactly what we're intending to do, which is to improve the outcome, which is to make the outcome better. So, you know, it, alter, it may alter treatment pathways in the future, and I think that's important. How do you treat an acute lumbar disc herniation? Okay. So then, you know, you can break down what the structural somatic dysfunction is with an acute lumbar disc herniation. You know, they're going to have a pelvic asymmetry. They're going to have a sacral torsion. Uh, they're going to have an antalgic gait pattern. They're going to have, you know, uh, the lumbar vertebrae are going to be flexed and rotated in an abnormal fashion, secondary to the body's response to the pathology. So how can we incorporate the treatment pathways from, you know, from an OMT perspective and incorporate that earlier on with maybe more even a medical model or interventional pain model uh, to improve our outcomes. And I think that's a reasonable thing to do in my specialty, uh, but I think in other specialties, um, as Dr. Palab was saying uh, in pediatrics, uh, childhood torticollis dystonia uh, it's a big problem. Rhineck, they used to call I remember the pictures. Remember the picture of the kid yep. that looked like he had a fist in his, in his neck uh, from the books? They used the same kid, the same picture, and all the textbooks. I think that might have been Greenman's textbook. I think there might be one in Greenman. I'll have to go back and look. Um, but, you know, so how can we, you know, obviously, you know, how, that's a great example, actually, a great, uh, where there's, you know, science 
that we've done and the outcomes are improved, uh, you know, and how can we spread that to other specialties, cardiology, uh, bariatric medicine, you know, psychology, psychiatry. Uh, I, th I think, you know, if, you, if we start to think about it that way, instead of just saying, okay, you know, we're gonna do, you know, these are the osteopathic principles for manipulation, we're gonna do that. And don't really focus on the disease process. I think that there's a shortcoming. I think if we think more on the disease process and everything, um, when I was talking with Dr. Green a few weeks ago, uh, I, w I brought up the example of, of uh, Dr. Greenman's textbook, okay, the one that came out in the early 90s, the mid 90s, the principles book, uh, the one with Dr. Rowan, uh, right? Um, so. And, I, and, you know, I felt, and I remember feeling that at that time, but I always felt, and I still do now retrospectively, that we're some 30 years removed from that textbook that, that came out for 30 plus years. We had the, you know, the, you know, the, the luxury of looking back over time and, and really appreciating the significance of that textbook. And from what I appreciated, so there was a portion of that textbook near the end that, uh, you know, and at the time it seemed like it was kind of a new, thing where Dr. Gridman was actually bringing in a lot of other, you know, disciplines, nerve conduction studies, MRI, CT, we can incorporate all of these other diagnostics, facet, inject, I mean, all types of interventional pain, other treatments that can incorporate, and what Dr. Gridman was, was really emphasizing his book was therapeutic exercise and treatment of somatic dysfunction. And he would go into great lengths and have examples, this is the exercise, to treat this this is how you can create your own this is how you can treat your own sacral torsion and do that but then that bot that you know he had that like i want to say the final 50 pages or so was looking at how other ancillary type of studies mri emg injection surgeries how that can also you know be in the same realm and i think in the future that all of that should be integrated all of it should be integrated and we should be looking at, you know, treating disease processes that you would see in any cardiology textbook or interventional pain textbook um, and have the osteopathic concerns as well as the medical concerns embedded. I think that would be great for the next generation of DOs. Yeah, I would agree. And I, I was kind of thinking along those similar lines is that you know, we, we kind of talk about the osteopathic on one, the osteopathic approach on one end of the spectrum versus the Western approach on the other end of the spectrum. And kind of getting back to the wisdom is what what and how much. And so there, we're, there's a, if you do, Venn diagram this about what we know versus all the integrative work and that kind of thing that, that you were just talking about is that eventually we'll get to a point where it's all known. Um, and, um, and then we can kind of properly uh, kind of put people in the bucket that's gonna work best for them given the circumstance. Um, the caveat to that is the book Breath, right? Because over the course of multiple thousands of years, we've known the importance of breathing through the nose and it's been, and he's documented that it's been there, it's been shown to be successful and then forgotten um, at least three times, I think, or at least multiple times. So the question is, why was that the case? And so um, maybe it's a little beyond our scope today, but talk about an osteopathic intervention is just getting people to breathe through their nose their entire life um, and all the, the health benefits that have been well-documented because of that. Um, and then why, so why, and that's a perfect example, very simple, cost effective, very, very cheap, obviously free for many, um, but yet it kind of falls by the wayside. So then kind of that, that brings up barriers to, um, I guess, to implementing the, these osteopathic principles that we're talking about. Yeah. I like that idea of what to do and how much is being kind of a very, question to ask yourself um, and so when I was in Alaska doing my third and fourth year clinical rotations we would have tumor board where you'd sit down with the oncologist the general surgeon 
the internist taking care of the patient and everybody would talk about one or, or however many patients they were going to present and everybody would give their opinions. It was really neat to see that team approach. The team approach. Yeah, oh, I love powerful. that approach. I, I, yeah, I love that approach. Absolutely. And that's kind of what both of you, what both of you are saying. So. Yeah, how do you build that into like, you know, we're individual folks. I'm kind of at the whim of whoever thinks about me or a patient asks to come see me versus being a little bit more protocoled about who needs to go to an OMM provider, who needs to go to PMNR, who needs to go to, you know, neurology first, you know, because when I talk about um, aesthetic manipulation, like where does it lie in medicine? While well, I touch neurology, I touch PMNR, I touch physical therapy, I touch orthopedics, I touch sports medicine. You know, I, I have a little knowledge base and all that, but I also know my limit of where this, an acute injury, I can help with the recovery piece, but it needs to be looked at by the sports med guy first. You know, um, how do we kind of make sure that, that we're kind of taking that team approach even though we're sort of in individual offices. You know what I mean? Because there is tons of value with that team approach, for sure, in terms of efficiency and making sure that things are done right as quickly as possible. I think part of the challenge is communicating what we do. Right. It's very, like, words are a little bit, maybe fall a little bit short. We might not have the concepts to clearly explain what we do to other specialties. Even if they're DOs and have gone through OMT the course, it's still quite challenging to understand. I mean, even for me, I struggle when I explain it to patients. Oh yeah, you know, I mean, explaining what you know what we do every day. Um, you know, I, I do explain at least once a week. You know, what's what's your specialty? What do you do? And it's like, well, you know, and what, what's interesting, and we touched about this, uh, Dr. Green, a little bit in the past. And we just we chatted one on one, but. Um, you know, it's like, uh, you know, you get your primary training and your, and your specialization, you know, you're, 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 maybe you're a DO, you're an MD, you go on and you specialize in, in uh, neuromuscular OMM, you go on and specialize in PMNR, you specialize in pediatrics and all these other things. Um, and, you know, that's, it, it shouldn't stop then. So your learning shouldn't stop at the end of your residency. Your, the, the, what you do and how you do it should continue to grow. And it may have an offshoot and it may actually overlap other specialties. In fact, there are umpteen million examples uh, of specialties that overlap maybe 20% of what they do uh, with another specialty, sometimes with multiple specialties. And, you know, that is always that, you know, confusion necessarily, turf wars, who gets to do what, or who, you know, this and that. And I don't believe in any of that. I don't believe in those. Um, I believe in, you know, what you were saying was communicating what your skill set is, how you can approach problems, and then let others know, let other specialists know. And say, oh, I do this and I do that, and I do this, this and that, you know. Um, and these, I think I'm, you know, really good at doing this. You know, I'm pretty credentialed or whatever. Uh, but send me a few patients, and I'll, and you be the judge. Yeah. You know, so, so that, I think that's, you know, that's important. And I don't think we should really be limited, uh, in many cases, to what the, you know, dogma rules of what our specialization was when we finished our specialty. Uh, you know, because. You know, specialization is always in flux. Sub, sub, sub specialization are always, uh, and I think that's really what the future of medicine should be. Quite interesting, fascinating. Any, we're we're at an hour. Closing remarks. Anything you guys want to say? No, this was this was was a great discussion. Um, You know, I think uh, you know we we should uh, continue and and, and keep probing these some of these topics. Uh, I think there's a lot of uh, you know what's interesting about speaking of specialization. uh, You know, a topic might be how uh, if you're a medical student out there, an osteopathic medical student, getting training and and trying to figure out what you're going to do. it's, it's interesting how uh, the choice of specialties has evolved and changed uh, over 
35, 40 years, my, my practice life, uh, you know, I think that would be a good discussion because there's some data that's come out uh, that shows that specialties that uh, used to be very uh, hot or hard to get into uh, are now uh, not. <laughs> like so, what? Well, uh, well, the one that's the one that I actually I, I got this from another podcast I was listening to from the I get these random things I don't know where, but it was like the American uh, uh, Emergency Medicine uh, you know groups you know from the American College of Emergency Medicine uh, that specially had something like six hundred and fifty un unfilled residency spots just this past spring for first year ER residents throughout the country. Over six or they had to go to the supplemental draft, you know, the scramble to get this and that. So they were talking about why what the reasons were for that. You know, what were the reasons for that. So I thought I brought out some really good reasons. COVID uh, burnout, you know, other things that affect ER, um, you know, corporate takeovers, all things that really affect people. So I just think that would be a good discussion to look at, you know, your life and specialization and, and how, you know, how things can change over time. Because what was once hot is, you know, what may not be, but then we'll be hot again. <laughs> I could pull out anything. So, you know, my, my background in sort of um, finding the harmony between science and ancient wisdom. And we had talked about this idea of the natural, natural wisdom that still was kind of, um, you know, keying in on. And I had mentioned before we started recording this idea that nothing is new under the sun. And the thing that keeps coming up to me is the definition of shalom is a deep abiding peace and harmony between God, self, and other, and part of that is the created world. So that's, um, you know, it was written down uh, 5,000 years ago, so it was probably um, talked about in the Mes Mesopotamian cultures as well, this idea that we are at our best when we're in harmony with uh, meaning, deity concept, however you would like to define it in your life, um, others, ourselves, and the created world. Um, and so I think a lot of what's still in the Shawnee Indians and that kind of thing are, are keying in on that ancient wisdom. And so the idea is just how do we bring that ancient wisdom into the medical interaction and also understand that we are um, developing a scientific habit as well. So how do we find how all that works together um, without dismissing one or the other and, and knowing, um, perhaps even looking at cost and what's the most efficient way to move forward with any given problem? Yeah. I think kind of the underlying like, virtue, if you want to talk about virtue, there is humility, kind of recognizing that we can all learn from one another. The importance oh, of like, being very respectful to people around us, respectful to yourself, um, respectful to nature and creation. Yeah, I really like that. So, yeah, let's uh, wrap it up. Thank you both for your time you. and sharing your wisdom. Good, and really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you, Dr. Green. Thank you.